Welcome to the Jury Room Podcast. This is Kevin, your host. I'm going to be doing a feed drop every week this month, showcasing a podcast who I think you guys deserve to hear. This episode is from The Active Shooter, the podcast. It's a great podcast. It's another podcast on the Oracle Network. I just wanted you guys to take the time to listen. Definitely go subscribe. Let them know what you think. And stay tuned for next week. I will have another podcast that I will showcase every week to the end of the month. Thanks for listening. And as always, stay safe. The Oracle Network. We have an active shooter. We have an active shooter inside the warehouse. Welcome to Active Shooter. A podcast that covers the whys, the hows, and the aftermath of active shooter and mass casualty events. They have an active shooter in the building. A second call says they uh, are being attacked. I've been shot. One six nine ten means we got shots fired. Four fifteen a.m. at the Route ninety one. Sounded like an automatic firearm. Active shooter, reports of an active shooter, active shooter, active shooter of mass casualty incidents. Thank you for listening. You are listening to Active Shooter, a podcast that may contain adult themes, explicit language, and graphic depictions of violence. Portions of this show may be traumatic for those under 18. Listener discretion is advised. Begin with that developing situation in Napa County right now. There is an active shooter and hostage situation unfolding at the Veterans Home in Yonville. This is located in Napa County. CHP and SWAT teams have responded to the facility located on California Drive off Highway 29. And according to Napa CHP, there is an active shooter on that grounds. At least two hostages. We have confirmed that. Several dozen law enforcement officers from multiple agencies converged on the area shortly after the call came in around 10.20 this morning. We are working to confirm reports that the shooter has on body armor and fired between 15 and 30 shots and fired them at deputies. We're trying to confirm that. Several nearby businesses were put on lockdown and people were told to avoid that area. The shooting that took place at the Pathway Home on March 9th, 2018 was a terrifying hostage situation, one in which no one was spared. Not one hostage walked away with their life intact. Instead, three adults and one unborn child were murdered in cold blood. Having no real ties to the shooter, the three murdered women and unborn child were innocent victims who showed up for their jobs, as they always did, wanting to help traumatize service members and troops cope with the horrific realities that war can inflict upon a soldier. Except... March 19th was different from all other days because those same three women and unborn child would never see the light of another day. Active Shooter the Podcast is a High Five Holly production, and I'm your host, JT. If you've listened to our prior episodes, you know that the Active Shooter Podcast team has taken the No Notoriety Pledge and we will not be sharing the real name of the shooters that we cover. 
we will be giving the shooters a pseudonym and refer to them by that name throughout the episode. This will help in clearing up any confusion in the story, while remaining true to our pledge in not naming the shooter by their actual name. We will refer to today's shooter as Greg. The Pathway Home was a non-profit residential treatment facility, which assisted post-9-11 veterans that struggled with PTSD and traumatic brain injuries with the intention of reintroducing them into society. The home was a part of the Veterans Home of California, located in the wine country region of Napa County. Greg had been a patient at the home for the past year, though he was recently dismissed from receiving treatment a few weeks earlier, and he was angry. He became extremely irate after he was booted from the treatment program, and his exasperation continued to grow with each passing day. Greg wasn't going to let it go, and he planned to make things right. He was beyond angry about his dismissal, and almost immediately began formulating plans. On February 27, 2018, he rented a car from the Sacramento International Airport, a rental he had no intentions of ever returning. The evening before the shooting, on March 8th, Greg was looking for information about suicide and murder-suicide, performing online searches that included, quote, planned murder-suicide, and he read articles including, quote, murder-suicide when killing yourself is not enough, and practice makes deadly perfection. He also watched videos on YouTube about suicide and murder, all of which carried graphic warnings. March 9th was the day he planned to exact his revenge, however misguided it was. At approximately 10.18 a.m., Greg approached the Pathway Home, located at 100 California Drive in Yountville, California. Before leaving his apartment, Greg wrote a note of apology to his landlord, indicating that he wouldn't be returning. Ever. He collected his weapons, an unmodified 12-gauge Stoger coach shotgun, and a 308 JR Enterprises LRP-07 semi-automatic assault rifle. The 308 had a 20-round high-capacity magazine and was modified with a magazine release called a bullet button, which released the magazine with the push of a finger. The bullet button made the magazine unremovable without the use of a tool. Because of this modification, the rifle was considered to be an illegal assault weapon. Greg carried three additional 20-round magazines for the rifle, which he carried in a tactical belt around his waist. The belt included 12 more shotgun shells. It appeared that Greg was ready for a serious battle, or a shootout. Either way, he intended for people to die. Greg arrived in his rented 2018 gray Toyota Avalon and parked on the northwest side of Madison Hall, which was in Section G of the campus. The building bore security cameras at the front door and the hallways. There was a sign-in desk manned by two California Veterans Home Public Safety Officers. However, they were each unarmed and were trained to a much lower standard than most law enforcement officers, meaning they weren't trained or equipped to properly handle an active shooter situation. Along with his two weapons, Greg carried multiple spare magazines of ammo strapped to his waist. He carried the large black tactical-style rifle in his left hand, though it was attached to a sling that crossed his right shoulder. Slung over the left shoulder was the shotgun, which laid across his back. Greg wore a blue shirt, black tactical pants, a black hat with red lettering, with black earmuffs over his hat, 
clear safety glasses with black frames and black shoes. He entered the hall through a metal door that led to the basement, doing nothing to hide or conceal the guns he carried. Later, investigation showed that Greg had been at the hall the night before the shooting, so he could leave the door propped open, enough to easily gain entry the next day. This allowed him to enter without the need to swipe a keycard. After coming into the building, Greg headed up the stairs towards the second floor. At 10.19 a.m., surveillance captured him making a right turn to a stairwell labeled to second floor and going up the stairs. When he reached the second floor, Greg walked right into the group room, number 4124, where a going-away party was taking place for two employees. We had kind of just started the party um, when the, the gunman walked in to the room that we were in. He strode into the room, a man with a purpose, weapon drawn, and ready to fight. Greg told three veterans in the room to leave, now. So first he let the veterans go, um, and then said, staff, staff needs to stay. Um, so at that point there were seven of us, seven staff members. Um, and then he said our names by first name and said, you can go. Doing as told, the three men hurriedly exited the room, which was only moments before a festive occasion with cake and toasts to the future. There were four other women in the room that Greg ordered out. Those four women fled from the room, and then only Greg and three other women remained. Greg kicked out the doorstop, effectively locking them all into the room. I just ran out as fast as I could, um, and I thought that, I mean, my life was saved. I thought... I was going to die. Dr. Jennifer Gray Golick, Christine Labor, and Dr. Jennifer K. Gonzalez Shushareba, who was seven months pregnant, were all trapped in a relatively small room with a madman. Just before the door to the room closed, surveillance footage captured Dr. Shushareba protectively cradling her pregnant belly, trying to shield her unborn child from the danger she inherently sensed was before them. He was just very calm and... Um, just kind of looked at all of us. The first 911 call was dispatched at 10.21 a.m., reporting an active shooter in progress. Cal Fire responding for a shooting at the Veterans Home, Building G, repeating at the Veterans Home, 100 California Drive, cross of Solano Avenue and Outer Alameda staging is required. The time, 14, 16, and 12. Medical involved possible active at the veterans section Madison building. The very first caller identified Greg by name, which was incredibly fortunate because it allowed police to respond to the scene armed with information. The first officer, Napa County Sheriff's Deputy Steve Lombardi, arrived four minutes after the initial call. The Napa County Sheriff's Department was contracted to police the veterans' home which is what brought Deputy Lombardi to the complex. As he entered, looking for the active threat, the deputy felt keenly aware that he wasn't going to come back out alive. Being the only deputy on duty in the entire town of Yuntville at the time, there was no time to waste waiting for backup. However, the one advantage that Deputy Lombardi did have was the previously mentioned information. You see, dispatch was feeding details about the shooter to him, including the shooter's military background. 
He cautiously approached the peaceful-looking Spanish-style building, armed and ready for a shootout with a dangerous, trained assassin. There couldn't possibly be a better man for the job, for the deputy was a 26-year veteran of the Napa County Sheriff's Department, who had previously served as a range instructor for officers for over 10 years and had extensive expert firearms training. As he arrived, a witness, someone that Greg ordered from the room, waved the deputy down, telling him even more valuable information. The shooter was on the second floor, in the group room number 4124. No shots had been fired, at least not during the time it took her to exit the building. The woman used her keycard, and together she and Deputy Lombardi entered the building, carefully making their way up to the second floor, clearing each room along the way. The woman led the deputy upstairs towards the last known location, however, he stopped her from going any further past the first floor, knowing it was much too dangerous. Creeping towards the room, Deputy Lombardi slowly cracked open the heavy metal door, leading into the group room. He peered at the shooter, who stood inside holding a rifle with a flashlight affixed to the barrel, pointing upward towards the ceiling. Hearing the unmistakable click-clack of the rifle being racked, a bullet loading into the chamber, one of the hostages inside the room screamed a high-pitched, terrifying sound that echoed throughout the room. Deputy Lombardi feared the woman would be instantly shot to death because of this. Inside the room, the air was heavy with palpable fear, emanating from the women. At 10.30 a.m., Dr. Jen Golick called her husband, telling him she was taken hostage and that she knew or recognized the shooter. The line disconnected and Mark never heard from his wife again. Deputy Lombardi began firing from his service weapon at 10.31 a.m. He was shooting through the door, aiming in the direction where he saw Greg standing when he peeked into the room. Greg returned fire, also through the door, and the men exchanged gunfire until Deputy Lombardi was able to find cover. He positioned himself, reloaded his gun, expecting to see Greg exit the room towards him. As this was happening, his body cam was knocked off. The hallway became littered with white drywall dust and small shards of metal from the door. Sparks from the bullet going through the metal door flew towards the deputy, who was running on sheer adrenaline as he waited for Greg to come blasting out of that room after him. He is armed with an M4 style rifle. 15 to 30 shots fired against the deputy. What the deputy wasn't expecting was that once Greg stopped firing through the door at the deputy, he turned his rifle on his hostages, executing each one coldly, brutally, before turning the gun on himself. Dr. Shushareba and Dr. Golik were each shot once, both of which were fatal. Christine Labor was shot several times. Multiple rounds caused numerous fatal injuries. Greg fired one 12-gauge shotgun slug into his own head, killing him instantly. There has not been any confirmed communication with the gunman since about 10.30 this morning. Deputy Lombardi held his cover until backup units could finally arrive. Seven additional officers showed up to relieve the deputy of his duties, including three Napa County Sheriff's deputies and four Napa Police Department officers. Not knowing what was taking place inside the room, only that the shooting had ceased, the police force collectively believed they had a hostage situation and called in the SWAT team, who attempted contact with Greg for seven exhausting hours. Subject with a rifle holding three people hostage has a semi-automatic with a lot of ammo. 
Around 5.45 p.m., the SWAT team sent a bomb robot into the room where the dead bodies of the three women and shooter were discovered. The shooter carried a massive stash of bullets around his waist and neck. Deputy Lombardi fired a total of 13 bullets, while Greg fired 22 rounds from the 308 caliber rifle. The entire facility was placed on lockdown for several hours, while about 80 students from the local Justin Siena High School were on the property, at the theater specifically, rehearsing for a play. The students were on lockdown before being safely removed from the property. Knocked on every door and said that we're in a lockdown because there's a, a shooter on campus. A nearby golf course and other businesses that were close by were evacuated. Homes close to the campus were told to draw their blinds and windows and lock all doors. Even if I seen or heard bullets flying, I still, you know, I'm kind of, I was infantry. And I was stationed with the 75th Rangers, so I know a little bit about bullets flying over your head. And don't, don't get, don't panic, you know, because you panic then you're in trouble. Active shooter, reports of an active shooter, active shooter, active shooter, mass casualty incidents. Active shooter, reports of an active shooter, active shooter, active shooter, mass casualty incidents. The ensuing investigation proved that no shot from Deputy Lombardi struck any victim inside group room number 4124 and no shots from Greg hit the deputy. Evidence showed that immediately after the 10-second shootout between the two men, Greg killed the women and then himself. He never answered the SWAT team during the seven-hour standoff because he was dead the whole time. The women, an unborn child, were murdered about 12 minutes after Greg entered the home. Shortly before 6 p.m. this evening, law enforcement personnel made entry into the room and unfortunately made the discovery of three deceased females and one deceased male suspect. Around the scene, yellow crime scene tape was placed, which included Madison Hall and the parking lot. The California Highway Patrol, or CHP, officers were posted at each entrance to the building while a bomb-sniffing dog was brought in. It alerted on Greg's car, possibly after smelling the ammunition or gunpowder, but the car was ultimately declared safe with only a cell phone being found. Greg lived at a residence in Sacramento, and the SWAT team and ATF agents executed a search shortly after the standoff ended. Investigators marked anything that appeared to be evidence inside Greg's house. They collected a rifle bag and containers for ear and eye protection. Shoe print impressions around the rifle bag were documented. Almost immediately after the building was declared safe, Flowers began to accumulate outside the veterans' home sign. The locals were devastated. The area was only just recovering from massive wildfires from the previous October, and now this tragedy. It was more than some could bear. 48-year-old Christine Labor was born on November 12, 1969. She was born in Boston, but raised in Easton, Massachusetts, and graduated from Oliver Ames High School in 1987. Christine attended the University of New Hampshire, where she graduated with a bachelor's degree in communication. Her career began at the New England Sports Network, but she went on to work for Boston Healthcare for the homeless for about five years. During her time there, Christine was inspired, continuing her education and earning a master's degree in social work from Boston College in 2008. After obtaining her master's, 
Christine started working with veterans at the VA in Brockton, Massachusetts. Christine was a believer in mental health advocacy and sought alternative methods for coping with trauma. She attended the Kripalu Center, which she earned yoga teaching credentials, using that education to aid vets in dealing with trauma. Christine moved to California in 2013 and began working at the VA in Palo Alto for a brief period before going to work for the VA in Santa Rosa. In 2016, she was recruited to the executive director position at the Pathway Home, where she was passionate about teaching yoga both at the home and in the community. Christine was known for her love of movement, which included cycling, hiking, and running. An avid traveler, she was a huge fan of the Boston Red Sox and the New England Patriots. Those who knew her described Christine as someone who loved music, reading, and was a movie buff. She wore a constant, radiant smile and had a unique ability to make anyone around her feel special. Christine was truly devoted to her work with veterans and was committed to that career path. She is survived by her parents and a sister and will be deeply missed. Dr. Jennifer Kolick was born on January 12, 1976 in Houston, Texas. When she was a year old, she and her family moved to Calistoga, California, where she graduated from high school in 1994. Known as Jen by most, those who were close, such as family and friends, called her Jiffy. After high school, Jen attended the University of California, Davis, where she earned a bachelor's degree in psychology. She then attended Sonoma State University, where she achieved a master's degree in counseling psychology. Unfinished with her education, Jen then enrolled in Akamai University in Hilo, Hawaii, where she earned a Ph.D. in philosophy. Forty-two years old when she was murdered, Jen lived at St. Helena with her husband Mark and daughter McKenna. The couple would have celebrated 20 years together that summer. Jen was known as an intense listener and truly talented public speaker. She was passionate about traveling the country, speaking about the importance of adolescent mental health. Jen understood the importance of all-around good health, not just focusing on mental health, but physical health equally. An avid runner, she frequently participated in local races, including Tough Mudder events, and was a regular at the local CrossFit. She loved to challenge herself, but had nothing but love and compassion for those she loved, including her three dogs, Floyd, Hambone, and Ripley. Jen is survived by her husband and daughter, but also her mom, stepfather, brother, and stepsister. She joins her dad, Randy, and beloved dog, Bo, in heaven. 32-year-old Dr. Jennifer Gonzalez Shushareba was born on July 27, 1985. She grew up in Northern California with her parents and three brothers, graduating from Francis High School in the early 2000s. She spent a year abroad in Italy and managed to earn a bachelor's degree in psychology from Loyola Marymount University, all while adventuring around the globe and even climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. She continued her education and earned a Doctor of Psychology degree from the PGSP Stanford Consortium at Palo Alto University, and from there interned at the Iowa City VA Medical Center. Jennifer then finished her postdoctoral fellowship at the Santa Rosa VA Clinic, where her focus was on vets with PTSD. During her time there, Jennifer became a clinical coordinator of the VA Vital Program at the Palo Alto VA, and from there, she became a clinical psychologist with the San Francisco VA Student Veterans Health Program. She helped provide care to post-9-11 vets at Napa Valley College and Pathway Home in Yountville. 
Jennifer loved to travel and had visited all 50 states before she turned 30 years old, which is no small feat. She enjoyed being outdoors and thoroughly appreciated the time spent outside, camping with family and friends. Jennifer was thoughtful and caring, making frequent visits to her grandmother, who had Alzheimer's. The two would play ukulele together, and the time spent was precious to Jennifer. Meeting her future husband, TJ, online in 2013, the couple married on March 18, 2017. A loving couple, they enjoyed cooking together and listening to music of all kinds. They were thrilled to be welcoming their first child, a daughter, whom they decided to call Cecilia Rose. Jennifer was due in June of 2018, and sadly, her unborn child perished alongside her. She will be missed greatly by all that knew and loved her. The Veterans Home in Yountville, California, is one of the largest in the United States, with beds for at least 1,100 men and women. The main function is helping veterans from World War II until present day. Opening in 2008, the Pathway Home was dedicated to providing services specifically for post-9-11 vets and is located on the Veterans Home campus. A beautiful Spanish-style building with the usual stucco walls and red roof tiles that are typical of Southern California. The Pathway Home was a highly regarded program that created a model which successfully aided soldiers and veterans with PTSD to rejoin civilian life. The program provided physical and mental health services, a community college, job training, and even help with gaining employment. About 450 vets had passed through the doors of the Pathway Home while it stood open. The Veterans Home is run by the State Department of Veterans Affairs. Active shooter. Reports of an active shooter. Active shooter. Active shooter of mass casualty incidents. Active shooter. Reports of an active shooter. Active shooter. Active shooter of mass casualty incidents. 36-year-old Greg was originally from Sacramento, California. A soft-spoken, quiet child, he grew up with a dark rage that lived inside him. When Greg was eight years old, his dad died and mom suffered from many health issues, which made it impossible for her to care for Greg. Family friends offered to take Greg in and they eventually became his legal guardians, whom he lived with for about four years. The couple tried to get Greg involved with activities such as youth sports like track, baseball, and basketball, and enrolled him into a local Catholic elementary school located in San Bruno. Greg went on family vacations with the couple to places like Hawaii, Florida, and Boston, where Greg witnessed snow for the first time ever. However, when Greg hit his teen years, he was placed into foster care, though research didn't provide the reason for this. Greg attended high school in Daly City near San Francisco and spent much of his teenage years with a foster father and six foster brothers. By most accounts, the boys seemed to get on just fine, playing hockey, baseball, and even fishing together. One of the foster brothers described Greg as having the occasional angry outburst. Things went too far once when Greg got mad and pushed one of his foster brothers down a flight of stairs, which caused the boy a broken leg. After that incident, Greg was sent away to live with another foster family. It seems Greg always wanted to join the military from a young age. He claimed to want to serve his country and eventually enlisted in the Army Reserve, serving from 1998 to 2002. During this time with the reserves, Greg did not work full-time in the service. 
yet he could have been deployed at any time, should the need arise. From May of 2010 to 2013, Greg was stationed in Hawaii, except for a brief time when he was deployed to Afghanistan. Those three years of service were active for Greg, and he was a full-time Army service member and did a tour in Afghanistan for one year between 2011 and 2012. During his time in the service, he received several awards, including a Good Conduct Medal, an Afghanistan Medal, an Army Commendation Medal, a NATO Medal, a Global War on Terrorism Service Medal, a Combat Infantryman Badge, and an Expert Marksmanship Badge. The latter badge is awarded in situations where a troop is given dangerous assignments as tasks to complete. In 2013, Greg moved back in with his former legal guardians for a brief period. The couple and Greg had stayed in touch online, and they were glad to offer Greg a stable place to stay. They would later comment that Greg saw terrible things while deployed, and those things changed him. After he was honorably discharged in 2013, Greg dreamt of going to college and earning a computer programming and business degree. He loved computers and felt it would be a good transition into civilian life along with the routine of working out. Greg was also very passionate about music, enjoying it anywhere he was. During his enlistment and after, Greg obtained a private investigator license, a security guard permit, and a firearm permit. In 2008, he received a license to work as a security guard, which allowed him a permit to carry a 9mm handgun. The license was suspended the October before the shooting. He had no reason for the suspicion or cancellation was listed in the records. One thing Greg didn't hide, or keep secret, was active participation in services through the Veterans Home. His guardians were hopeful about his progress there, and despite his mental health treatment, the couple weren't surprised that Greg had a rifle, mostly because they knew he was trained with firearms and even had a license to carry one. They described Greg as a thoughtful gentleman who regularly visited his sick mother, bringing her her favorite foods. She passed away about a year before the shooting, and while it's not known for certain, perhaps her passing coupled with his dismissal from the pathway home was the catalyst for his downward spiral. When Greg found out about the pathway home, he was instantly excited, telling his guardians, quote, I think I'm going to get a lot of help from this program. And he needed help. When he returned from Afghanistan, Greg wasn't the same. He never smiled, and he started drinking rather heavily. He became almost obsessed whenever he had conflicts with a friend or family member. Further compounding his deterioration, Greg truly believed that the military owed him money, and he became consumed with proving this. They had to look out for each other's lives. He saw what you see that you think you only see in the movies. You had to see that. He experienced issues getting reimbursed through the GI Bill program for classes he took, and this became the root of why he felt he was owed from the military. It seemed that PTSD was severely affecting his daily life. Greg was having trouble sleeping and was hypersensitive about his surroundings, yet for a long time he was ashamed to ask for help. A former Army friend reported later that he offered Greg a place to stay, but Greg declined, even though he struggled to keep his feet beneath him. In addition to the veterans' home, Greg received assistance from a veterans' hospital in San Francisco. However, his services with the Pathway Home and Veterans' Home were cut off after Dr. Jen Golick ordered Greg to be removed from the program. Greg had many conflicts with the home, and refused to follow the home's policies and procedures. After he was found with knives, Greg was asked to leave the program. His official discharge date was meant to be February 20th. However, he was 
actually asked to leave sooner than that date, possibly due to threats made to the staff at the clinic. Only days before the shooting, Greg told one of his foster brothers that he was furious with the staff for terminating him from the program, and expressed desire to get back at them. The foster brother said that Greg never threatened to kill anyone, or any other type of violence. He just thought Greg meant that he would merely have words with the program supervisor, not commit the deadly shooting that later ensued. Both weapons that Greg used in the attack were legally purchased and owned. The double-barrel shotgun was paid for at Sweeney Sports in Napa on February 14, 2018, and picked up on February 25th after clearing the state-mandated 10-day waiting period. Just about a week later, he purchased the 308 rifle from Coyote Point Armory in Burlingame and picked it up on March 5th, again, after waiting the requisite 10 days. It is clear by the types of guns he purchased, along with the massive amounts of ammunition, that Greg carefully planned and executed his next attack. The families of the victims have filed wrongful death suits against the Pathway Home, the state, and local agencies. In the suit against the Pathway Home, it was alleged that the home failed to maintain safety and security. We've told CalVet and the state for years now how unsafe this place was. Anybody could walk in here with anything. After the tragic shooting, the home suspended operations indefinitely and has not reopened to this day. Prior to the shooting, the Pathway Home was open for 10 years, providing the invaluable service of helping traumatized soldiers, and sadly, due to the unconscionable, disturbing acts of one man, many, many service members will continue to suffer in silence, deprived of the resources they so desperately need and deserve. A celebration of life was held for these three victims on March 19th at the Napa Valley Performing Arts Center at the Lincoln Theater on the Veterans Home Campus. The celebration was open to the public and provided the families and the community the opportunity to collectively grieve what was lost, but celebrate what was here for however short a time. Each victim had their own private funerals as well. It's very difficult to say whether this shooting could have been prevented. However, we all have the unique ability to help prevent such a catastrophic event from happening if we keep our eyes and ears open and never hesitate to report when something or someone just doesn't seem right. It is our sincerest wish that there will be no more active or mass shooting stories to tell. We pray that love will prevail over hate. Too many have died. We should say to ourselves, not one more. In the meantime, we urge our listeners to stay aware of your surroundings and keep in touch with your loved ones. If you see something, say something. You never know how many lives you'll be saving. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Active Shooter, the podcast. Remember, if you see something, say something. There's no telling how many lives you may be saving. A huge thank you to Darren Curtis, who composed some of the music used in this episode. Check him out at darrencurtismusic.com. D-A-R-R-E-N-C-U-R-T-I-S. Music.com. 
active shooter. Reports of an active shooter. Active shooter. Active shooter of mass casualty incidents. Make sure to check us out on social media. We have a discussion group on Facebook. Just search for Active Shooter, the podcast discussion group. You can also find us on Instagram at Active the Podcast and Twitter at Podcast Active. For just $1 a month, you can get access to ad-free episodes, early release episodes when available, and a shout-out on the show. Just go to patreon.com forward slash active the podcast. Thank you, and be safe. Page, the host of Reverie True Crime. I tell stories of helpless victims, vicious killers, predators watching their prey before they strike, survivors, petty crimes, people we think we know who do the unthinkable, and the dangers that lurk not only in the dead of night, but in plain sight and the light of day. Every once in a while, I'll also tell stories of the frightening paranormal, elusive cryptids, haunted locations, and conspiracies that may be silly or thought-provoking. You can listen to Reverie True Crime wherever you're listening to this podcast. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at Reverie Crime Pod. Facebook, Instagram, and even Tumblr at Reverie True Crime. Remember, stay safe, be aware of your surroundings at all times, and take care.